Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11 says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Kind of sobering to read about it today, right? We're in a series right now in Acts chapters 3 through 5 called Unstoppable. We've been working through the book of Acts. We saw Acts chapter 1 and 2, the origin story of God's people, the church, Who we are, where did we come from? And I'm not talking about just Fairfax Bible Church. By the way, September 11th, you don't want to miss it. You want to be here for our 10th anniversary. We're going to have a great celebration. But we're not talking about the origin story just of Fairfax Bible Church, but the church globally, the church universal across this globe and across time started right there on that day of Pentecost through the preaching of the apostles as they proclaimed the good news about Jesus Christ as King and as Lord and as Messiah, that he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and God. had sent his Holy Spirit, Jesus had sent the Holy Spirit to those apostles, and many, many people came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they were baptized that day. An awesome time. We've got thousands of people that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, putting their trust in him, offering their lives in in service and in love and devotion to him, but we see that while this thing was exploding, we see that there was opposition. And last week, we heard a a great message from our our brother, Matt Rumbaugh, here. Thank you so much, Matt, for sharing the scriptures with us last week. But he talked about keeping that story going. In the midst of opposition, what did the disciples do? Did they cower? Did Did they hide? Did they fear? Did they tremble? No. They kept the story going by calling out to God in prayer, by remembering that Jesus is the hero of our stories, and then retelling that story with great boldness. And what happened? 
Well, God validated that prayer, right? And the ground shook and there was great courage that filled their hearts and they went out and they were preaching the gospel. And so you see here, there's this, this moment that Satan says, okay, these people are, they're coming to faith in Jesus. I hate that. I hate that they're filled with the Spirit, so I'm going to turn up the heat on them a little bit. I'm going to give them some opposition from the religious leaders, and, and this opposition comes, and guess what? It doesn't work. And Satan realizes that external threats aren't the things that are going to tear this group of people down that are passionate about sharing the good news about Jesus and living on mission. So what does Satan do? Well, I can't attack them from the outside. Maybe I can get to them from the inside. And what we'll see from this text, friends, is that our, our greatest weakness aren't the external threats that are on the outside, whether it's those who want to persecute us, shut us down, ridicule us, mock us, force us to want to change our message. No, no, no. The greatest threat to the mission of Jesus in this world is not out there. It's in here. It's in our hearts. And our big idea today is this, and it's not all negative, trust me. It's very positive as well. Grace is is our strength, sin is our weakness. Grace is our strength, while sin is our weakness. It's as simple as that. Uh, you know, I could come up with something more clever, but I'm like, why, why make it confusing? It's simple. Grace is our strength. Grace was the strength for these first believers, but their one weakness that they had was internal, secret, deceptive sins of the heart. Let's take a look at this together. Grace is our strength. Again, verses 32 to 37 describe this, this moment that, that's the fruit, I really believe, of the prayer that we saw last week in Acts chapter 4. They prayed, Lord, give us boldness as we face this opposition. And the ground shook and they were filled with that boldness. And now this grace of the gospel of Jesus is just busting out. It's amazing. And we see right there in verse 32 to 33, how is grace our strength? Well, first of all, grace removes all the barriers that keep us apart apart. Grace removes all the barriers that keep us apart. Again, verses 32 to 33. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You just see this grace, this invisible shower of grace that's just pouring down upon them. Well, what is grace, though? I mean, what, are we talking about graceful, like a ballet dancer or something? I'm not going to pretend to be a ballet dancer. Are we talking about being graceful? No, it's, it's, it's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. It's his, it's his blessing, it's his kindness that is showered upon his people, his love and compassion and mercy and, and favor that's just showered upon his people, especially when they do not deserve it. These people, they, they didn't deserve it, they were born in sin, but yet God has showered his grace upon them through what? Through the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done and the fact that he's Lord. And, and what happened because of this grace? It removed the barriers that, the, that, that existed between them, barriers that were were social, that were ethnic barriers, uh, political barriers. But specifically in this text, we see that, that, that through the grace of the gospel, even economic barriers were just falling down all over the place. They had one heart toward each other, a feeling of love, a feeling of family, a feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood. 
They recognize that no matter where we, come, we came from, no matter what our cultural background, our language background, our, our, our religious backgrounds even, we, we are coming together because we have one Father and we're a part of one family and we feel something really special about one another. They had one heart, but they also had one soul, one mind. They were together for one purpose. I mean, could you imagine if this happened, uh, you know, just a few miles away in Capitol Hill, right? One purpose, right? That would be amazing where you see parties cross lines and say, we are together. It, it, it hasn't happened recently, right, friends? Hasn't happened in a long, long time. I don't know when it will happen again, but there's one place where there can be people that come together and all the barriers can be removed. That's in the church of Jesus Christ, committed with one heart toward each other and one mind, one purpose, one mission, one cause under one Lord and Savior who is Jesus the Messiah. Amen? And so these people found that the grace that they were experiencing, it was their strength. It removed all the barriers that kept them apart and it's all, it can remove all the barriers, friends that keep us apart. Ethnic barriers, social barriers, political barriers even. Can Republicans and Democrats and others get along in the church of God? I believe so because we bow to one Lord, amen? But also economic barriers. You know, in the first century, there are all kinds of different classes and different, uh, different types of groupings of people based upon your status. But right here we have in this moment, that they shared together everything. The gospel of grace even broke down the economic barriers. You see, most of the time, all of our affiliations are based upon our circumstances. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of this team, or I came from this state, or I work in this field, or I have this hobby, or it could be even deeper than that. I, I come from this culture, and I feel my culture is better than your culture. I come from this background, and I believe that this background is better than that background. I believe that my blood and my pedigree is, is better than yours. Or, or it could be that I have this job and this career and this education. Therefore, I, I just, I've got it better than you've got it. Friends, grace is the strength that can break down all those barriers. Our affiliations, they... In this place, in this household, in this group, in this congregation, they should not be based on our circumstances. No, this grace soars above our circumstances and joins us together, right? I mean, the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he preached that very thing not far from this place, right? I have a dream. I have a dream, what was the source of that dream? It wasn't just a political idea. It wasn't just a social idea. It was rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks down all barriers. Amen? Grace is our strength. Well, how else is grace our strength? Grace, grace is powerful enough to even eliminate all of our needs. Grace is powerful enough to even eliminate all of our needs. Verses 34 to 35, again, it says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is amazing stuff, friends. 
I mean, this, this is so powerful that it's even causing people to say, you know what? I see my brother. I see my sister. I see just family in Jesus in need. And, you know, I've got this property over here across town, and, you know, I, I'm not really using it. I saved it to maybe build a building someday. But you know what? I'm going to sell that field, and I'm going to use the proceeds, and I'm going to use that to help those that are in need. I mean, this is quite remarkable, quite amazing, isn't it? To think that you'd be willing to let go of something so valuable for the sake of another, for the sake of someone who's hurting, the sake of someone who's in need. But this, this gospel of grace is, is great, it's immense, it's, it's powerful. Now in the first century, unless we start you know, leaving here today and all of us go down to the, you know, the real estate office and start selling away all of our properties, maybe God wants us to apply it that way, but well, let's just be careful for a moment. The situation in the first century was such that there were all kinds of people in the city of Jerusalem. They had come from all over the world. And in fact, we know from uh, ancient history, the, f- the first century there, uh, there were famines that were happening throughout the land. And so there was great need amongst the people here in this first church in Jerusalem. And so we see they were doing something extraordinary because extraordinary need required extraordinary measures to be taken to provide for those needs. But whether we decide today to go out and sell that second home or that second property or third property or whatever or not, the, the principle remains the same. We are called to say, hey, not only do I feel one way about you, not only do we have one mission together, but I believe that God has put resources in my hands to help you, brother, you, sister, when you feel need. Think about it. Think about all the different economic structures that we have in the world, right? Socialism and communism, we've tried that. And socialism and communism says, my possessions belong to the community, therefore I have little to no say in how they are used. To put it simply, the community is king, right? Well, that doesn't seem to work so well, amen? Well, we've, what about capitalism? Well, capitalism is wonderful, but it, it still has flaws. It, it says that my possessions belong to me, therefore I have all the say in how they are used. To put it simply, it, it kind of says, I'm king over my possessions. But here, what this first century community was experiencing, they weren't stripping possessions away from people and said, okay, it belongs to all of us now. But there was these people that also said it doesn't just belong to me, no, The perspective of the gospel of grace that is our strength says this. My possessions belong to my God and my creator. And he's entrusted them to me to steward them wisely. Therefore, I have a responsibility to him to use them wisely to meet not just my own needs, but to meet the needs of my family and the needs of others as I see it. Put simply, the the gospel of grace that is our strength says this. This is the economic system we belong to. My possessions belong to God. Jesus is my king. Not the community and not even myself, but Jesus is my king and I submit to him whatever he would have me do with my resources. This is the perspective of the gospel of grace that is our strength. My possessions belong to God and he's entrusted them to me to steward them wisely. I'll tell you, there was a time that I got to be the recipient of this. And there's been times where I've got to be the, the benefactor as well, but, but I want to I wanna just talk about those that have blessed me. There was a time back in 2007, I, we have three kids, and uh, our youngest, Alethea, wasn't even born yet, but I had two little boys, and I had a wife, and I was working in the real estate industry as a, in escrow, title in escrow. And if you know, if you can remember the history of the 2000s, uh, you remember that there was a bad real estate crisis that happened during that time, and I, I got laid off from work. Here I was, a man that was laid off, 
I didn't know where my next paycheck was going to come from. I didn't know how long it was going to take for me to, uh, to find another job. I was a guy who had a college degree, but it was in biblical studies. I mean, where am I going to find a place to get hired in the marketplace there, right? But I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And it took me a while to find a job. But during that season, God's people lived in the gospel of grace for me and my family. They, they supported us. I didn't even advertise that I was out of a job. Word got out, and guess what? I experienced this kind of community and love and gospel grace that was present in this first century community in my life. People would send anonymous checks and anonymous cash to me, and, and, and I didn't even know what to do. with. There was a moment, a few months into it, right before I got hired again, I looked at my wife. I said, Laura, I'm looking at our bank account online. We've got more money in the account now than we had when I was employed. This is, this is the gospel of grace, which is our strength. It breaks down the barriers that exist between us, including economic barriers. Friends, this is the kind of grace that God has given to us. He's lavished his grace upon our lives freely as a gift from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that grace has come to transform our hearts so that we can have eternal life. But that grace is called to just spill out and pour out of us for one another and for those in our community that we love, that we see, that are in need. Praise be to God. But then we also see that grace is our strength because it does something really, really powerful. And it's related to that second point. It's this. Grace sets us free from being owned by our possessions. But, right? Wait a minute. I thought I owned my possessions. Oh, no, no, no. The Bible teaches us that without God's rule in our lives, we actually can become owned by our possessions. Look at verses 36 to 37. Here's a great example of the strength of grace uh, through the gospel. Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. By the way, we're going to see Barnabas throughout the story of Acts here coming up. This is just the introduction of him right now. He was a Levite, of the, a native of Cyprus, and here's what he did. Verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And this is amazing, friends. He's saying, you know what? I've got this possession. This, this possession could be worth whatever amount of money. And if I hang on to this possession, maybe the value of it even will rise, right? What a great investment real estate is. But what does he do in this moment? He says, no, I'm not going to be owned by my, my possessions. No, no, no. Because I belong to this gospel community. And this grace is strong enough to say, I won't be owned by my possessions. My possessions belong to my King and my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I see brothers and sisters in need. Therefore, I'm willing to give it up. Now, it doesn't say anything about how emotional that must have been for him. Who knows? Maybe this was a property because it was, it was very common in that day and time that property was passed down from generation to generation to generation. Maybe this property had been in his, his family for, for years, even generations. Friends, we don't know the internal emotional struggle that it may have been for Barnabas to do this. But we do see the power and the strength of the gospel of grace on display to say, I am willing to let it go. I am not owned by my possessions, but I belong to a Savior and a King who is Jesus Christ. And he's willing to let it go. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Uh, this, is, this is a warning, but it's an encouragement for those who are rich in this age. Friends, if you live in the United States of America and you have a roof over your head and you drive a vehicle and you have all of your meals every single day, friend, you are counted amongst the most rich and wealthy people on the planet. So lest you think to yourself, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not in the Forbes, you know, richest, whatever. 
Friends, in many ways, we should listen very carefully to these words. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proudful, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on who? On God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. There it is. The power of the gospel sets us free from being owned by our possessions. And what Paul is, is telling Timothy there, I want you to tell everybody who's, who's rich in your congregation and rich in your community, don't set your hope on riches. Is it wise to set money aside as a retirement? Amen, it's wise. Is it wise to buy a home and, and, and increase its value? Amen, it's wise. But friends, we must be careful because those riches could start to possess us instead of us possessing them for God's glory. Oh, friends, we must be careful of that. We must repent of it, living in this age. But praise be to God that his strength of his grace is powerful enough to set us free from being owned by our possessions. There's a story. Many of you are very familiar with it. Uh, many of you have seen various uh, uh, stories, uh, how it's been told various ways. But Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. And I'm sorry, it's August, but I'll bring it up anyway. You know the story well. Published in 1843, and you know the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. In fact, we use that term Scrooge as someone who's stingy, right? Cranky, right? Hoards money. Ebenezer Scrooge is a very rich man who, who owns a bank, and, and he's got all this money. He has this little employee, Bob Cratchit, a man who's a dad and a husband, doesn't have much money. And uh, it's getting close to Christmas, and he's being very harsh with him. And in fact, there are some people that come and knock on uh, Scrooge's door to say, hey, would you donate some money to help the poor? And he, he turns them away because why? He's, he says, I own this money. I've worked hard for this money. Well, that, that night he goes home, and I believe it's Christmas Eve, and his old friend, the ghost of his old friend who had died, Jacob Marley, appears to him and warns him of his stinginess. And he's uh, visited Scrooge throughout the night through three ghosts. You know this, the ghost of Christmas, past, present, and yet to come. And what, what he sees in this moment, he sees a much bigger perspective. He's only focused about his money, but what he sees is that his life is but a breath, it's but a vapor. He sees all the opportunities that he's thrown away to invest in the lives of others. He sees how he's doing it in the present, and he sees that his future is filled with a future of despair and hopelessness and lostness, being all alone because he's kept and hoarded money for himself, and he's not shared it generously with others. But I love the story. You know the story. Scrooge wakes up terrified, scared of what he saw, but he wakes up in the morning and he realizes, I've got a second chance. And he goes out that Christmas morning and he's just being as generous as he could be. He's, he's showing up at people's doors with food and, and resources and he's just blessing people. Why? Because he's realized something very and very important, that our money can possess us or we can use what God has put into our hands for the good and blessing of others. Friends, we've got an opportunity coming up on September 24th. Amen? Generosity Feeds, our Go Beyond event. Thanks so much to Brian who shared it earlier. But we want to be a part of this, a part of this opportunity to say that grace, uh, the grace of God and the gospel is so strong that we want to be here. And sure, there'll be other people here for various other reasons. But we want to show up, Fairfax Bible Church, not just to say, I want to help somebody out who's in need, but I'm doing it in the name of Jesus Christ and the gospel of his grace that is strong, that breaks us free. 
from being owned by our own possessions. I hope that you'll join us that day. This is our opportunity to show the strength of the gospel of God's grace by putting it on display. I want to ask you, is the strong grace of God on display at Fairfax Bible Church? I believe it is. I believe good things about you, church, because I've already been, I've only been here three months, I've already been recipients of that strong grace on display through you. You've loved me, you've loved my family, I've watched you love one another, support each other in small groups and in various ways, caring for each other, visiting each other, loving each other when you're in need, providing meals for each other, helping me move mattresses up my stairs to my second floor in my home. Oh, the grace of God. I've seen glimpses of it. Oh, I pray that this would be our experience in the future. Let it bust out. Let let his grace just be upon us all, flowing out through us, that it would be put on display in all kinds of ways, breaking down barriers, showing off that God has given us his strength and his grace. What a scene this was. But that's not the end of the scene. Lest we think, lest we think that all was hunky-dory, that everything was great, that this church was invincible, we see a story. And I'll cover this briefly, but, but we see here that while grace is our strength, sin is our weakness. And we read in verses 1 through 11 of, of the story of Ananias and Sapphira holding back some of their property not leaning into the strength of grace, but pulling back from it and keeping things for themselves. And in fact, in verses two through three, we, we see here the first thing about how sin is our weakness. We see that sin seizes control over our lives. Sin seizes control over our lives. Verses two through three, again, with his wife, that's Ananias, his wife Sapphira's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now listen to what Peter says, though. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What a statement. Satan. Right in the middle of this grace community, there's a moment that Satan finds and he says, I see some sinful desires in Sapphira and Ananias, Ananias specifically, and I'm going to go there and I've got him. I've got my way into this strong community. Sin seizes control over our lives, friend. Right there in the moment, Ananias, it says, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. This this word, it's only used a few times in the New Testament. One time in Titus 2.10, it says that slaves should not be pilfering or stealing from their masters. Employees should not be stealing or pilfering from their uh, employers. Shouldn't be keeping back, carving out some from the top for themselves, Right? Uh, It's also used of embezzlement. It's an unfaithful and dishonest use of money for one's own gain. What was going on in Ananias' heart in this moment that he would skim some for himself when he said, all the proceeds I'm giving to God? He didn't have to do that. Peter made it very clear. Look, the property was yours. And after you sold it, all the money was yours. But what happened? Well, he brought a portion of the money and said, I sold the property for that much. But really, he sold it for a lot more and kept the difference for himself What he was saying is that I'm giving it all to God, but really what he's saying is that I'm keeping most of it for myself and I'll give some of it for God. I want the recognition. I want to be the man of the hour, just like Barnabas was. My friends, this is is the danger of sin. This is the danger of riches. 
See, what we saw in the last part, grace is our strength. We saw that money and resources is supposed to be used by us for God's glory. But what we see is that when sin gets into our hearts and infects our desires, we see and view money differently. Now we become used by money for sinful and deceptive purposes. 1 Timothy chapter 6 again, but verses 9 through 10 have a stark, stark warning. Paul writes to Timothy, those who desire to be rich. Is there anything wrong with being rich? No, absolutely not. Those who desire, who crave it, greed, those who desire to be rich, where do they fall? They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the love of money is a root a root of all kinds of evil friends. It's not what you see on the outside. It's the root that starts in your heart and in my heart. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I'm sure as Paul is writing this, I'm sure he's thinking to himself, don't forget about Ananias and Sapphira. They were ruled by their desire to be rich. They were ruled by their desire to use money for their own purposes, for their own glory, to say, I'm going to use this money however I want. I'm going to keep some of it. I'm going to say, I give it all to God. Look at me. Give me praise. Give me thanks. I've done an awesome deed. Oh, friends, sin can seize control over our lives. We know 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it doesn't start out there. It starts right in here. Right in here, your desires, my desires that are in antithesis to what God wants and says, I want to be king. This is what I want. Sin can seize control of us. It seized control of Ananias. He dragged his wife into it. it and it wasn't, it wasn't something that was, again, all, all that was visible. I mean, when you look at Barnabas and what he did, and when you look at Ananias and what he did, if everybody's standing around, if we had two gifts that were brought in here right now for those that are in need, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the gifts. But God could see it. God could see it. Sin had taken control over Ananias' life, and it caused him down a path of one sin and another sin and another sin. Have you never experienced that before? You think, oh, just this one little thing, just this one little thing, and nobody will know about it. It's no big deal. This one little indulgence, this one little time, this one little view, this one little saying, this one little thought, and we find that one thought gets piled on another upon another upon another, and sin seizes control of our lives. Ananias, though, had tried to put on a pious disguise. This brings us to the next thing about sin is our weakness. Sin cannot, hi- we, sin cannot hide behind our pious disguises. Again, verse four and verses eight through nine, it says this, while it remained unsold, Peter speaking to Ananias, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. See, Ananias thought, oh, I can just sneak this one past Peter and the apostles. Peter says, no, no, no. You've not lied to man. You've lied to God. And verses 8 through 9 also says this, Peter said to Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Friends, our pious disguises cannot veil the sin in our hearts when we stand before a holy God who knows all and sees all. 
You know, we come to church and, and we try to act piously. We try to act, uh, you know, righteously and in a holy way. And we come in with this facade sometimes with this smile on our face as if to say, I'm doing everything God wants me to do. But if you've been like me, there have been Sundays that you've walked in knowing I've got sin hiding deep down in my heart. Just put on the disguise, go through the motions. No one will ever see it. Friends, your piety cannot disguise the sin of your heart. Their contribution, Ananias and Sapphira's, it looked just like everybody else's. It looked just like Barnabas's. But deep down, they were controlled by their desires for recognition. They were controlled by their desires of, of pride and wanting the attention. They had a love of money, which is greed. And the deception, they tried to deceive the apostles. And in their minds, they thought they could even deceive and get one by God himself. Oh, friends, they couldn't hide, though. God revealed it. The Pharisees, they, during Jesus' time, they were religious leaders who lived in a similarly hypocritical way. Saying one thing and doing another. Saying one thing and living one way, but in their hearts being full of something else. And you know what Jesus had to say about them? He called them whitewashed tombs for their hypocrisy. He said, you look beautiful on the outside, like a beautiful whitewashed tomb, but inside your hearts, you're full of dead men's bones. Oh, friends, this is a grave danger for us who live in religious environments, who come to church and put on the show. And not many of you here are not here to put on any show. Praise be to God. But if you're honest with yourself for a moment, you've been there. You might be there today, putting on the show. Oh, this is a grave danger in our churches. This is a grave danger at Fairfax Bible Church. This is a grave danger for the man standing before you now, right here on this stage Oh my goodness, how many pastors and leaders have we seen putting on piety before others, but inside their hearts, they've been full of dead men's bones and deception, just like Ananias and Sapphira. Oh friends, are you here today hiding behind a pious mask while inside your heart it's filled with secret and unrepentant sin? My goodness. Sin is our weakness. You see, what I think Ananias and Sapphira thought was that sin was promising them life. We can keep the money, we can use it however we want, and we can have the recognition of being just like Barnabas and getting the accolades for being generous, right? We get to have it all. Sin promised them a life, but sin delivered death. That's why sin is our weakness. Sin promises life, but it delivers death James, the brother of Jesus, who later on became one of the head leaders of the church, he writes in James 1, 13 to 15, he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It promises life. It, it, it tickles our desires. It, it, it appeals to our senses and says, ooh, I, I want that. I want that. It could be financial desires or sexual desires or desires for power, or desires for lust. It could a whole gamut of things. It could be a, a proud desire. I want to look good. I want to look righteous before others. And so you, cannot, you, you conceive of, of wicked things. But James says, when that desire, when that temptation has lured you away, 
It, does ne it never delivers on its promise of life. It only brings forth death. And it says as the result of all this in this text, twice it says. Uh, it says in verse uh, 5, and it says in verse 11, that great fear fell upon all who saw it and all who heard about it. Friends, <laughs> I want to tell you right now, when we behold the holiness of God and when we see our own selfish sinfulness, fear is a friend. Fear is a friend that alerts us of the danger of sin. You know, I, we're not here to be a church that's advocating fear. We don't want to mo motivate anybody by fear primarily. We want to motivate you by the love and grace of God. But when we're in our sin, that first motivation is to say, I stand sinful before a holy God. And right in that moment, fear is your friend. Because it's telling you, flee from your sin and turn to a God who is still waiting with open arms. Fear is a friend that alerts us of the danger of sin. But we saw here two things, both true at the same time. Grace is our strength. Sin is our weakness. Now, many of you are much more uh, able in history than I am. Uh, I'm not much of one for Greek mythology, but you may remember the mythological character, which we think he's mythological, the character Achilles. Uh, Achilles, when he was an infant, he was it was foretold that he would perish at a very young age. And so to prevent his death, his mother took Achilles to the river Styx, which was supposed to offer powers of invulnerability, right? She dipped his body in the water, but because she held him by his heel, it was not touched by the water of the river after she brought him out. So Achilles, he grew up, according to the smith, as a man of war who survived many great battles. He was a mighty warrior of strength. But in the myths surrounding the Trojan War, Achilles was said to have died from an arrow that wounded his heel. The one point of weakness. You see, just like Achilles, we, we all want to be perceived as strong. We want to fight our own battles without any weaknesses. But just like Achilles, we have a fatal flaw, which is the secret and concealed sin of our hearts. Try as we may, we cannot escape this Achilles heel on our own friends. But praise be to God that the gospel is God's news for weak sinners like you and like me, all born with this Achilles heel. His grace is greater than our sin. God foretold in Genesis chapter 3 at the very first sin, at that moment of Adam and Eve, God promised that a child would come into the world who would be struck in his heel by the serpent, Satan. But see, Jesus Christ, this, this seed that was promised, he took on all of the weaknesses of our Achilles heel, our sin, and he bore them on the cross. He took the punishment we deserve, yet he was without sin. And with his heel, he crushed that serpent and rose victoriously from the grave. So friends, because of the good news of Jesus, because grace is our strength, we don't have to hide in corners. We don't have to show up with masks. We don't have to pretend any longer. We don't have to be owned by our desires and by our sins and by our possessions. We don't have to succumb in death to this Achilles heel because we have one who's taken on the punishment for us. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can come fully and cleanly to the throne of grace and find mercy from his hand. In closing, I just want to ask this. 
What does this mean for Monday? What does this mean for tomorrow, today, and, and beyond just this church service? And I want to ask you, where, where do you see yourself in this story? I mean, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira and Peter, all these people are just like you and me. I want to ask you, because grace is our strength, and grace breaks down barriers. I want to ask you, like Barnabas, how has God's grace, this powerful grace, been prompting you to get it out? Maybe you've seen tangible needs in, in our community here, even at this church at Fairfax Bible, and the Spirit's been guiding you to volunteer to use your resources, your time, your talents in one of our ministries, or, or maybe this opportunity of this go beyond with generosity feeds, or maybe it's in a small group to bless them. But God is giving you great, strong grace to, to meet those needs and glorify God. You see, a genuine, an authentic, a real experience of God's grace always starts in our hearts but it will inevitably flow out from us. We, all, we have needs all over this place, friends. I mean, you can start right across the hallway. We need people to help love our kids in the name of Jesus on Sunday mornings. We need people to help tear this place down as we pack it up and get it ready for next week as well. We, we have needs here, but will you be like Barnabas and come and say, God's grace is strong. I want to give what God has given to me and pour it out for the blessing of others. Maybe like Barnabas today, God's been prompting you, and it's time to take action to say, I want to be a part of this grace community, putting God's grace on display. Well, maybe you're like Ananias and Sapphira today. Maybe you've showed up and you've been living in deceit. Maybe you've been living a life of hypocrisy. Are you living a life of secret sin today behind what people can see you may think you could fool others for a while. You could probably even fool me and the elders at this church, but there is no hiding from God. Inherent in his grace is his desire to purify us from the sin that defiles us and that will kill us if we don't confess it to him. But today, friend, you've got an opportunity, an opportunity to confess your sin to him, to repent and take new steps of obedience to Jesus. His grace is stronger than your sin. Do you hear me? His grace is stronger than your Achilles heel. It is stronger than your sin. Come, receive his grace today. Confess your sin. Turn from it and call upon God's grace to wash and forgive you once again. Fear came upon the people as the result of this powerful encounter with grace. And unhealthy fear can paralyze us. But Godward fear can lead to life. Thus, the fear of displeasing God and of the consequences of sin, it doesn't have to take away the enjoyment of life. Rather, this fear is the gateway to true enjoyment. Fear, then, is our friend. Jesus stepped right into the middle of our greatest fears, fears of judgment, shame, evil, and death, and he emerged victoriously. We don't have to be paralyzed by fear. We don't have to be afraid of this Achilles heel. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has provided the way of escape to escape his fear of wrath and judgment of God so that we can land safely in his arms of grace. And that's what we want to end with today. We want to end with that today. We're going to sing right now. But I, I hope that we can sing in, in such a way that says, I will remember the strong grace of God even as I reflect upon and ask myself, is there an Achilles heel in my life today? Let's bow our heads and call out to God right now. Father in heaven, we call out to you. We thank you so much that your grace is so strong. It breaks down all the barriers. It teaches us to live in a new way and sacrifice and love for others because that's the model that we saw in Jesus. But all of us are born with an Achilles heel. 
All of us are born with sin in our hearts. And Father, today, there could be many of us, any of us that are trying to live the pious life just like Ananias and Sapphira, but in our hearts, it's full of sin and deceit, even Satan's control over our lives. Father, there could be someone here today that is feeling like, I have no control over my life. I've only experienced the power of sin to lead me into one temptation after another. But Lord, we're asking today, because your grace is powerful and your grace is good, we ask, would you set that man, set that woman free? That even now, as we close our service, that they would call upon the grace of our Lord and say, Lord, I have nothing to hide any longer. I confess my sin to you. We thank you for 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, you, Lord, are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So because of this love, because of this strong grace, we sing today. We thank you for it. We trust in it. We cling to your grace once again. Let your grace be on display in this congregation. Let it begin with me. Let it begin with the elders here, with the leaders here at Fairfax Bible Church. I pray, Father, that Generosity Feeds would be a, an event where we just get to put your grace on display. Your grace would be on display with us as we go out to our jobs tomorrow and our schools to say we've been transformed by the powerful grace of God. I can't wait to share it with you. So we commit ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.